Now, for something completely different, here is your host, Brian Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all sexes, and especially to all of you knowing there are only 251 shoplifting days left until Election Day, but there are still some really good bargains left on gently used lobbyists over on K Street in the logic-free zone. So avoid the rush, get your check in the mail today. And welcome to the Vote Uncommitted episode of The Two and Only where Nikki Haley will be appearing later as the Energizer dummy. Every week, we fearlessly slide down the razor blade of life, and today, it's into Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream Emporium, this year's sponsor of the State of the Union Address. In today's exciting performance, you'll hear your host, Brian Wilson, say things he will wish he hadn't, a talent that has plagued him through his 55 years in radio and TV, proud recipient of the Macaroni Award presented by the legendary Al Dente. Joining me, impatiently waiting in the wings for his Nobel Peace Prize, which was accidentally misspelled, this in honor of his collection of books, columns, and bumper stickers he's written dedicated to the embarrassment of the Washington kleptocracy, the advancement of freedom, and the appreciation of Bavarian beer. His current bestseller, Last Rites, The Death of American Liberty, has been rated dynamite by the Nobel Awards Committee. Mr. Bovard has also been canonized by the New York Post's resident armorer for his broadsides against the political narrative and other bovine excrement. Jim will be joining us from backstage at the annual Jerry Nadler Fashion Show. As guest speaker, Jim's speech is entitled Beards and Railroad Caps, Sexier Than Suspenders and Potbellies. James, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Uh, Brian, thanks for your opening uh, monologue humor. It's always good, and it's good to be back and smack around politicians and other rascals. That's what we're here. They say you believe in the hereafter? That's what I'm here after. That's for sure. Oh, on a rare <clears throat> sober note, I want to remind everyone that today, February 28th, is the anniversary date marking the beginning of the government's 51-day siege against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas where some 900-plus feds, BATF, FBI, and Texas law enforcement people shot, gassed, and burned to death 75 of your fellow American citizens, of which 25 were children. Mr. Bovard has uh, provided copious, insightful material on the government's mass murder, beginning with Chapter 7 in Lost Rights, The Destruction of American Liberty, the bestseller that gave birth to Last Rights, The Death of American Liberty, both available at Amazon. Get the pair and... See just how free you are today. <clears throat> I don't suppose any of the mainstream media will be giving a nod towards this date, but uh, maybe in 51 days they'll celebrate Reno's barbecue. Well, don't know. I, I had a story uh, marking the um, anniversary last year in the New York Post, but uh, I mean, there was so much other stuff going on right now. So many other. Yeah, yeah. So many I remember events. that. They had a good picture to go along yeah, with. Yeah, excellent picture, great headline. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jim, last time we spoke about the various wars the Biden administration was waging around the world, the worst, of course, being the war on us, the people the media and elite class like to call the average American. Now, um, now you, you personally, you, Jim, you, the listener, may not have a climate-killing gas stove or a weapon of war like the dreaded AR-15, but you have something of value, and governments from Washington, D.C. to your own little town council want it, and they'll take it with impunity exercising their asset forfeiture laws. And every state's got them. You may not have had the pleasure of being a victim of asset forfeiture, but your time may be coming. In a Highway Robbery is the Law of the Land at JimBovard.com. Jim lays it all out. Okay, so it's uh, it's bad. 
but uh, but just how bad is it? I mean, what are the chances uh, that any one of us can get pilfered, Jim? Uh, 17%. 17%. Okay. Yeah. Of yeah. what? <laughs> uh, 17% uh, uh, if you're not shit out of luck. Oh, okay. Um, this, uh, this is a story about the asset forfeiture stuff and uh, the story, the latest. I mean, this is something I've been writing about for over 30 years. And obviously, I've had a big impact on national policy on this. Uh, that's a scoff. But um, so the um, government, federal, state, and local have been um, trampling the Constitution on this, trampling pro uh, property rights, and just coming in and using any kind of BS pretext to seize private property. And then the citizen has to file, uh, uh, file a petition, file complaints, file a lawsuit, to try to get it back. In many cases, the cost of recovery greatly exceeds the value of what the government uh, stole. So um, it doesn't really make any sense to fight. And low-income people are the most like most often the victims of this um, because uh, they're you know because they're more likely to fall under the uh, crosshairs of uh, law enforcement. Yeah, well, they have less money, and of course, uh, immigrants are even better because no matter what their situation, their English is uh, generally pretty shaky and not inclined to understand, much less pursue a, a resolution to that. But I'm, I'm always interested in this uh, things like this that suddenly you find, not suddenly, as you say, you've been writing about it for 30 years, but but when people discover it, you forfeit asset forfeiture, asset forfeiture, uh, uh, they've got asset forfeiture laws that regulate the goodies after they've been taken, but I, I wasn't able to find anything that stipulated at what point the law um, encouraged or allowed the law enforcement person to actually institute the action that results in asset forfeiture. Well, it's 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 a vague situation. The laws have been horrendously exploited uh, across the nation by federal agencies. There was a 1996 court case on this. Supreme Court case ruled in the Bennett's case. This was a um, a, a Detroit um, steel worker who was driving home, and he picked up a, a, a prostitute on the um, on his drive home. And in the delicate words of the media back then, uh, the uh, cops arrived as she was performing a sexual act on him. And so the uh, cops seized the guy's car, but it turned out there was a complication because it was co-owned by his wife. Tina Bennett's, and she had not given permission for him to stop and pick up a hooker on the way home. <laughs> and so, and it was, it's, it was a fascinating case because you had these, you had the chief justice uh, swallowing all the hokum that the Justice Department put forward to justify this seizure. And the, and the, uh, the, uh, the linchpin for the case was in the 1820s, there was a Spanish ship that was um, attacking a Spanish pirate ship that was attacking American ships, and uh, the Spanish ship was seized, uh, captured, and uh, it was ruled that some, since it had been in the act of breaking the law, uh, that at the time it was captured, that it was automatically forfeited, and the Chief Justice in 1996 used the same um, rationale for the Pontiac. Jointly owned by um, the, by the Benesses, and I was I was disappointed by the ruling because it did not explain how piracy in the 1820s became the legal equivalent of oral sex in the 1990s. 
Well, that's this is a... before Monica Lewinsky. This is before <laughs> Monica Lewinsky. Let me clarify. Well, that's, uh, I guess there's no, um, uh, there's no way of explaining the, uh, the leaps of justice that judges. Um, leaps of justice. That's a nice phrase. That's a euphemism, but go with it. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that to, to try and understand how judges arrive at their various conclusions with piecemealing these different precedents and, and all the rest. But uh, uh, as far as the origin of um, of asset forfeiture is concerned, I, I also wasn't able to find anything that uh, confirmed or denied my uh, suspicion that this grew out of eminent domain, which is approved in the sense uh, the, as far as the federal government is concerned, but the, was, was there any connection to that that you know of? I mean, they say you've been writing about this for 30 years. Is that, a, is this a, the, the, uh, the spawn of what was otherwise um, a, a constitutional action by the government? No, I mean, this is, um, there are cases where eminent domain is uh, considered legal, uh, but uh, this was not tied to that. It's interesting when I was, Digging back into this in the early 1990s, I was struck by a number of court cases that were cited by the U.S. Supreme Court that, that dealt with the, um, the Middle Ages English law that talked about confiscating uh, the, uh, the property if someone was trying to export silver without a license or there was some other uh, provision. But it was a very punitive type of policy in the Middle Ages, and yet the same moral and legal doctrines were carried forward into the U.S. statute book, but uh, by uh, by the um, and, um, by adopting common English common law at the time of our nation's founding. But these are the kind of things that should have been left behind as a sign of an absolute monarchy or basically tyranny. But unfortunately, we still have that in law books, and you got a lot of folks who are just uh, you know. Um, targeted and just their lives are blown up by this stuff. You know, there was a, a, a town in East Texas, Tenaha, and looking at some of the, the, the court cases, the names of the court cases on these forfeiture cases, like the, the state of Texas versus one gold crucifix. There was, <laughs> there was a woman driving down the road and she had a simple gold cross. The uh, She had a minor traffic violation Cops stole her crucifix and then put it in a stupid court record. Um, there, there were other cases in that town where the where the cops would come in and threaten to uh, seize custody of children if the uh, um, seize custody if the mother would not um, sign off and letting them steal all the money she had to buy a used car. I mean, there's just these. Um, you read the details of these cases, and you're just thinking um, it's it's jaw-dropping to see how much BS there is on a daily basis. But this is uh, this has been going back. I mean, this is so ancient that back in the 1990s, Congressman Henry Hyde was leading the opposition to it. And um, Henry Hyde was a congressman. For, I think he started around the 1780s. Uh, and he was a conservative Republican. Uh, he was big on the right to life movement as well. Yeah. But he was uh, pushing for forfeiture reform, and it didn't happen. It was the Clinton administration. It was Eric Holder who torpedoed that. And and thanks to that, you have the uh, cops in Texas stealing crucifixes and threatening to seize custody of children. And you've got so many levels of BS elsewhere 
Uh, and it just, um, I, I, you know, part of the trouble is that the cops have so many different pretexts to pull you over. And, and, uh, and once, once they pull you over, for instance, this place, Phelps County, uh, Missouri, cops would say if someone had an air freshener hanging from the rear view mirror, <laughs> that was a sign they were a drug dealer. <laughs> what if they had fuzzy dice? That would have been uh, even worse. Even worse, <laughs> even worse, probably uh, um, porn. porn. Yeah, probably that, probably that. But, I, you know, there were a lot of stories. In fact, I remember, in fact, I think I had you on as a guest. I was filling in for uh, Mark Davis on, on WBAP down in Dallas, and there was a, a fellow in a nearby town, Conroe or something like that, who Conway? was driving some rust bucket down the road and I mean, just going down the road, it was probably violating a whole bunch of laws, but he, he was on his way to pick up his new car, a new used car, a used truck as it matters. And he had something like $16,000 in cash on. And of course, you know, the, he got pulled over for whatever. And they found somehow the fact he had 16 grand and they took it. And yep. at the time, he had not gotten it back, and I don't know whatever happened to that case. I don't know if anybody uh, got involved, but it, it made some it made some decent news. I remember that, and that was fairly recent. That had been within the last ten fifteen years that I that I was uh, filling in uh, down there, and it was um, it was it was an astounding story. And people would start calling in, telling their experiences with that, and we and the family had an experience with. That eminent domain thing. My uh, my godfather had a beautiful piece of property up in uh, northern New Jersey uh, that went from a, a little used highway all the way back to a watershed, and it was gorgeous. It was a, we would trout fish back there. We would quail hunt back there. And he put in a pond. He was going to raise bass and all the rest of that business. A gorgeous, gorgeous piece. And one day he gets a knock on the door, and it's the state saying that they're going to put a highway right through the middle of that property, just cut it right oh. in half. And of course, that would mean he would be taxed on the frontage on the first part, and the frontage on the back part, and then the frontage on the second part on the other side of the road. And he went to town on them, and they were um, New State of New Jersey, very benevolent, uh, came around and said, "Well, you know, you got a good point. Uh, we will uh, we'll make you another offer." The offer was exactly half of the original offer and that was wow. that was it so he for his efforts to try and negotiate a a better deal if not an absolute rerouting of the highway at least a better deal on this magnificent piece of property and he lost big time big time on that uh, the, uh, yeah state. i mean uh, there are so many abuses uh, for people that get victimized by eminent domain it was a huge issue in, um, in a lot of american cities and the 1950s and 1960s as part of urban urban renewal and you had um you know and a, a lot of places the explicit goal was to drive out the blacks and the puerto ricans mm -hmm. and as these folks were being driven out you know they were compensated with uh, chicken snuff uh it's <laughs> the same thing is happening now and has happened for many years in baltimore baltimore has got so much crime the city's you know, just uh, uh, really gone to hell as far as people want to live there. But the city government has gotten all this money from HUD and other places to do urban renewal on the uh, piecemeal basis. What they have done is gone in and just uh, uh, condemn all these row houses and, uh, you know, th throw uh, uh, pay a pittance to the owners and then, uh, you know, raise the houses. 
and waiting for some very fancy condos to come in and take their place. And mm -hmm. hey, it ain't happening. But you've got a lot of elderly blacks and other folks who have been thrown out of their homes and given very little money, and they're in so much worse shape. Yeah, I was uh, I was there for the uh, in and out of uh, Baltimore for uh, the early parts of that, and uh, down around the stadium, uh, there have been there are some very nice condos down there. They're very expensive and so on, but those row houses up on Federal Hill, uh, which were being uh, bought up by yuppies and so on and, and remodeled them. Very nice. They had marble steps going up from the street and, and all the rest. But the but the rest of it, when the Section A housing and, and so on came in, even though it was new, it was still uh, poorly run and the uh, the neighborhoods went for went to went to the crapper and all the rest. But um but that whole yeah, thing the, with the, eminent domain, um and I'm sure you recall I I was involved with uh with IJ Institute for Justice uh, back then a little bit with that lady up in I always get it mixed up. It was either Rhode Island or Connecticut. She had a condo. Uh, was, uh, Connecticut. Was yeah. Connecticut. Okay. And, yeah, and um, she was, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was just the fact that she fought and fought and fought. And IJ came in and fought on her behalf for the intimate domain of this condo that she had. They lost. The state took it, mowed it down for a mall or something like that for a bunch of doctors, lawyers, or professional mall, something, whatever the hell it was. And it was like five, 10 years, it all went to, it all went for nothing. The, the, um, Nobody rented the space. Nobody came in. It was um, it was just an exercise in state tyranny. This woman lost, and this grand project that was promised by the state never never materialized. And it was a huge disaster because you had a precedent set by the Supreme Court that basically rubber stamped uh, government tyranny on property yeah. rights for yeah. that. So. I mean, well, wasn't the issue that was involved with eminent domain was that it was mildly understandable that say come in and take your property for a, a reasonable fee if they were going to a highway or something like that yeah 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 or a post or office or, you know yeah but uh, maybe a but, school yeah but yeah jail but this was yeah but this wasn't that case this was a, this was a commercial professional operation and that's i think where the sticking point was well but, it should have been i mean but no it was it was one of these really brazen Cases where the government comes in, seizes uh, one person's property, and pays uh, uh, very little for it, then turns it over to a, a corporation. I mean, keep in mind uh, that was how uh, George W. Bush got his riches with the um, that Texas Rangers uh, stadium down there in Arlington, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. that was right across the street from the radio station I was working at. They, uh, oh, really? Okay, yeah. that's yeah. I was totally corrupt what they did because they seized a lot of people's property near the stadium and then made out like bandits when the value soared. Yeah, they were trying to pull the same stunt. Uh, the last time I was uh, filling in for Mark, they were trying to pull the same stunt with bonds in Dallas to uh, for a new stadium there. And there was all the conversation about why is the state a floating bonds for a private enterprise is going to benefit from this new stadium and all the rest. And absolutely. So corrupt. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, you know, I, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe this whole uh, schlambazel with eminent domain and asset forfeiture was uh, the beginning of what we've got now in this whole two tier justice system where, you know, it was eminent domain for a post office. Okay. Eminent domain for a shopping mall. Not okay. Ah, but what the hell? We'll go ahead and do it anyway. And like you said, they've established the president, uh, the president, the present for the state tyranny. Well, and a, a huge part of the trouble is that there was just 
the uh, courts in general have been so deferential to government power grabs. And it doesn't matter if they're uh, grabbing private property or grabbing the Fourth Amendment. The courts have generally rolled over. Every now and then there is some pissing and moaning, but it really hasn't done much good. I mean, part of what's fascinating about this asset forfeiture stuff is going back to the 1990s at least. I mean, in the early 1990s, there were a number of federal court rulings, at least two appeals courts, I think, said, you know, th this asset forfeiture stuff is out of control. I mean, it's just some horrendous violations of due process. And uh, but the uh, Supreme Court has, uh, you know, sometimes moaned and groaned, but they have done nothing to stop the outrages. It's the same as with the um, there's a lot of other areas of um, of the statute book where 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 that's happened. It's the same with, with no knock raids. There was you know, some Supreme Court uh, decisions in the mid 1990s that said, well, these, you know, these um, no knock raids are not good. And then later on, there were rulings that said, well, except unless um, unless the cops are afraid or something like that. It was mm. almost that broad. And so it, it turns into a rubber stamp for no-knock raids. And you've had the same with uh, Supreme Court rulings that were just just an absolute disgrace as far as what they approved, as far as government agencies plundering private citizens. What is the point of having these guys walk around in bat robes if there's going to be a rubber stamp for tyranny? Well, I've never understood. First of all, it, it, the Supreme Court, at least to the extent that I've taken the time to try and read through all their decisions. Ah, uh, ah. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice assignment. There's no, there's no benefit to it because it's all in legalese and it has all these exceptions and what ifs and possibilies and howevers and heretofores and in hoc signo wing case and all this other Latin dribble that just throws through it. So you're, you're pretty left left as a layman trying to figure out what the translation of all this is and how can I benefit from this great uh, Supreme Court victory that's been trumpeted by the media. And finally, well, there's no victory there at all. You know, the fact is that even on the different rulings with regards to guns, which is you posted on fa Facebook, I'm jaded with that subject. They, uh, the fact is that the it's like one step forward and a half a step back or a half a step forward and two steps back and nothing really gets uh, resolved. Now, it was explained to me uh, by none other than Walter Williams and and uh, and Justice Scalia that the court cannot decide anything that is not specifically asked of them. At least that's what I was told. They can't broaden out the question as far as they focus specifically on the specifics of the case, if that isn't redundant. And so there's all these dingleberries that are left after it's over that they can't, they didn't, they won't, they haven't, they'll have to come back. I don't know. It sounds like perpetual employment to me at the... And it keeps the lawyers active, so I guess it doesn't really matter all that much. But um, it'll be interesting to see some of the decisions that are before them right now, what they're what they're going to come up with as far as bump stocks and triggers and and whatever else they're uh, they're wrestling with. But uh, like you I'm say, on the edge of my chair. Yeah, if the if the if all the judges, whichever size robe they're wearing, uh, all they're going to do is rubber stamp what the state says. And I thought, well, maybe that's the case. Maybe the the reason for that is that like on these um, asset forfeiture laws and the reporting requirements and all the rest, they don't have any reporting requirements for the goodies they've grabbed. And that it's so low profile and hardly reported, few people complaining, and the mother and the money they'd have otherwise offsets community costs, they'd be paid by everyone through higher taxes anyway. So there's not a whole lot of reason to think that there's going to be any serious change coming because even though it's horrible and terrible and people are 
are getting uh, brutalized from it. It offsets the cost that other ones would have been paid by a raise in property taxes, sales taxes, something along that order. So hooray. Yeah, it's uh, not a lot of progress. I mean, it's interesting. You were talking about the bump stock, bump bump stock case, the uh, on the definition of a machine gun. You know, the thing that would have been really helpful is you got these nine justices. They're sitting there listening to all these different arguments and on on what is a bump stock, what is a machine gun. It would have been a lot better to you know take just take one morning, take them all out to shooting range and give them okay, this is a machine gun. And this is a semi-auto with a bump stock. Can you tell the difference? Yes, you can tell the difference. So don't screw it up and, they, and you're rolling. That would be nice. <clears throat> that would be. There's a lot of things that would be nice. But the one thing that I've always found rather astounding is in the area of guns, which I know a little bit about, is that when people who are not into guns, who are not hunters, who are not collectors, who, are, who don't have a a license or a repair business or something is they don't know what the hell they're talking about. 99 times out of a hundred. Uh, they don't know what a semi-automatic gun is versus a fully automatic gun. They don't understand the difference between rifle calibers, trajectories, impact, and so on. It's just, uh, it's just fascinating. And yet they're sitting up there making laws for or against restrictions, taxes, and so on stuff. They obviously don't know a damn thing about it's, uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, well, that, that happens. Yeah, that's true of a lot of people, but it's not true of President Biden. I mean, there was a comment he made recently. He was talking about the need to uh, put uh, put a lot of restrictions in, uh, on the pistol braces that people use to make a pistol more stable. And Biden Biden explained that that simply by uh, attaching one of these pistol braces, it means the firearm shoots a higher caliber. That's right. A more powerful, it makes it more powerful. It's just fascinating. And if you don't no, know what a pistol it, it, it was not just more powerful. He said it was a higher caliber. Right. And, and, and it's like, okay, how does this change the barrel of the gun? It doesn't. But my 22 turned into a 44 Magnum. Wow, what a deal. <laughs> but if you don't know what a, 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 what these braces are, they're nothing more than a, a, a basically a piece of plastic, you know, with a with a strip of Velcro around the other end. You put your arm in there, you grab your gun, you bring the brace up, you fasten the Velcro, and now this brace is firmly attached to your arm. And of course, your hand being just a stone's throw from the end of your arm, you can take a grip on this thing, and it gives you a it gives does give you a better grip if you have a tendency to get the shakes a little bit when you're about ready to squeeze off around. Personally, I've never found them all that great because unless you've got real good shoulder muscles and biceps and so on to take over from the uh, partial immobilization of your forearm and hand, what the hell is the point? But the big thing was, was that people were using these things and you take your, they were called Ronnie's. You'd put your pistol inside the brace and then you put the brace on your arm, but you didn't put the brace on your arm. The brace was firm enough and that strip of Velcro not much of an of a of an intrusion, and you could put it up to your shoulder. Now you could fire your pistol as if it was a rifle. Well, that simplifies things. Yeah, the problem is that the the BATF has got a got an app for that, and it's called SBR, short barrel rifle. So essentially, the brace is turning them into a short barrel rifle, which are regulated as a class three weapon. Yeah, and a class three weapon means that they're under severe controls. You've got to yeah. apply for a license. You've got to pay these fees. Yep. You've got to get fingerprinted, a background check. Is that correct? That's all correct. I'm sitting here looking at mine. The one I just got in, I, I just got a suppressor uh, for uh, for one of my for my nine millimeter, and 
Uh, here it is. Here's the federal tax stamp right here on the top of the federal, the federal form. It cost me 200 bucks. I had to be fingerprinted, photographed, fill out the form. It took me a year and a month for them to clear it. And that's about oh. average for class three weapons. But to put a silencer, a suppressor in the same category as a fully automatic weapon is kind of kind of stupid. But that's a subject for another day. Uh, stupidity of government. We can go on for hours on that. But uh, once again, the knockoff Rolex president I bought from a street vendor in Manhattan for 20 bucks has ticked off our allotted time with reasonable accuracy. And before uh, before we exit stage right, let me encourage you to go to Brian Wilson Writes at Substack.com, grab a free subscription. Not only will my weekly scribblings magically appear in your email box, so will the weekly podcasts of the two and only. And you'll no longer have an excuse for missing each exciting episode. You can also get a copy of 50 Stories, 50 Years in Radio that's been awarded the Best Bathroom Reader by the Three Blue Bears at Charmin Tissue, a recent honor I've received. Also, a reminder from the top of the show, Lost Rights and Last Rights, the dynamic duo of Jim Bovard's writing talent. Add them to your library and storehouse of knowledge by going to jimbovard.com. Gentlemen, today's studio audience will receive a complimentary designer Speedo from the Jerry Nadler You've Got to Be Kidding collection. Ladies will each receive the popular Nancy Pelosi Black & Decker Eyebrow Repair Kit with the optional Gorilla Glue and King Charcoal. For James Bovard, Brian Wilson reminding you, why do Americans choose from just two people to run for president, but 50 for Miss America? We hope you'll join us next week.